I, during spring break, will be in the Bahamas, shaking them up down there, and I can't wait for that. That should be tremendous fun. Before we begin formally, there is a bit of a festivity we need to observe. Today, two of my colleagues are celebrating a very special birthday, Brian Morley and Greg Beely, and I think we ought to duly recognize their birthdays today, don't you? So, gentlemen, take that as my gift to you, far cheaper than anything else I could buy, and I hope you appreciated that applause. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Russell has given me the privilege and opportunity of beginning Master's Morality. He has asked me to speak on the topic, sexual purity. And so I will be more than happy to do that. When it comes to the topic of sexual purity, two basic things. Sexual purity, you ought to go for it. Sexual immorality, please don't. That's all I have to say. Let's bow in prayer, all right? Well, I do have a couple more things to add to that. Sexual purity, I realize, is a topic that you have heard discussed many times in many different ways. I want to do something a little bit differently this morning. We'll see how it works. First Thessalonians chapter 4 is where we will be in honor of the Word of God. Would you stand with me, please? First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3 says this, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. Then that word is defined, sanctification, a million dollar word, but it is clearly defined. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you know how to possess his own vessel or body in sanctification and honor. Not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. One other passage, if you would turn to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. I met some people as recently as this summer who don't believe that sexual immorality is a biblical issue. So I want to firmly implant it in your mind that it is indeed a biblical issue. God has made it very clear. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4, Let marriage be held in honor among all. I don't need to tell you that in today's culture, marriage is not held in honor among all. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. Let the marriage bed be undefiled. For fornicators, those are unmarried people who engage in a sexual relationship, and adulterers, those are married people who have a sexual relationship with someone other than their husband or wife, fornicators and adulterers, God says, I will judge. Let's pray together and then we will talk about sexual purity. Father, thank you for the privilege we have of meeting together. Our hearts have already been blessed incredibly by the music we have heard. I pray as we take a few moments now and turn our attention to the Word of God that you would speak a powerful way to each one, a most potent, practical topic. We commit these moments to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. This for us is a most timely topic for one very basic, simple reason. We are living in 1990 in a totally sexual, saturated society. It is everywhere. It has become... Something that confronts you and me every moment of every day of our lives. I was watching the Dodger game last night. Turner Broadcasting was airing the game because Atlanta is in town. 
as I was watching the game with my boy, there were times I had to kind of cover his eyes or send him out of the room because in the course of a nine-inning ball game, we were confronted with 12, count them, 12 Bud Light commercials. And I don't know the relationship between Bud Light and this, but they had a girl dressed, I guess they would call it a bathing suit, I called it strings, and the camera panned her from head to foot, back to her head, in a very slow, very deliberate panning of her body. What that had to do with Bud Light, I don't have a clue, but they certainly had a captive audience, I'll tell you that. Until my wife walked in and said, what are you watching? What that had to do with a baseball game, I have no idea, and I was embarrassed. I cannot anymore even watch a ball game with my boy without us being confronted by this. You are as well. A society that has become saturated sexually, the misunderstanding of genuine love that is pervasive in our culture has led to an epidemic of sexual immorality. The fact that standards even among Christians have become relative and no longer absolute. The fact that birth control devices are available at will and abortion on demand can be performed without a parent even being instructed that her daughter is having one. There is always the issue of curiosity that adds so much intensity to it all, wondering what it is really like, and if it is everything you've heard that it is. And then when you add to that the fact that life tends to be empty and many young people think, what do I really have to lose? We've got a potent topic on our hands. This is a topic of major, major discussion. I don't want to preach to you about this topic, okay? I know you have heard sex talks, probably some of you more than you can count. I know that most of you in this school, if not all of you, know where the lines are drawn and what the biblical ethic is. I don't think you need another sermon. What I would rather do is just have a little chat with you. Can we do that? Can we get a little informal? We also have a couple of microphones set up. We're going to give you the opportunity in a few minutes after I set the stage for this to allow you to come up and ask me anything you want about the topics of sexuality or dating, anything like that. I would love to have a dialogue with you for a few minutes about that. But before we get to that... Let's transform this from a preaching service into a, I don't know, what would we call it? A big brotherly chat? Can we do that? Kind of just brother to brother, brother to sister? In fact, do any of you have fathers who are 40 years of age or younger? Any of you? Oh, several of you. I'm old enough to be your dad. Well, then let's have a fatherly chat, okay? Can we do that? This will seem a little strange, but uh, use your imagination Picture you and me in the intimacy of a living room with a crackling fire in the background, soft music playing, and we're just going to talk, all right? Those of you whose dads are 40 years of age or younger, pretend you're on my lap. Well, no, that'd be a little weird, but we'll just have kind of a brotherly chat or a fatherly chat. Is that all right? Give me a minute to set things up here. I'm hot too. You don't mind if we get informal, do you? All right. Yeah, take the tie off. Okay. I'll loosen it. How's that? This okay? I've got a boy who's nine and a half years of age. His name is David. Many of you have met David, haven't you? He's an incredible kid. Whenever he's on the campus, he doesn't just walk through the campus. He bounces through the campus. He has not given my wife and I a moment's grief in the nine and a half years that he's been on this planet. But I have to confess to you that when he was about three years old, we did have a, 
we did have a little turbulent time as we were raising him because my boy developed at a very young age a fascination for trucks. And we used to live in Burbank on a four-lane highway. And there were trucks going up and down the highway every day. He wanted to see them close up. He didn't want to look at the trucks from our front porch. He wanted to see them real close. And he didn't like the kind that were parked and stationary. He liked the moving kind. So when he was three years old, we had a real problem with David. He was always running into the street whenever he heard or saw a truck coming. And it freaked us out. Because he would stand right in the middle of the lane waiting for the truck to come so that he could see it close up. And we used to tell him, David, do not run into the street. But he would always run into the street. Now, I'm not real wise, but I am a little wiser than the average three-year-old boy. And I knew that if he continued that behavior, it wouldn't be long before he'd be looking at the trucks real up close underneath. Know what I'm saying? I didn't want to lose my kid. He means too much to me. So we devised a very creative way. This is a lesson in, in parenting. All right? File this in the back of your mind. We have a white garden hose. And we stretched this garden hose out across the front of the lawn. And we told David, it was about 30 feet maybe from the curb, we told David, you are not to step over the garden hose. If you step over the garden hose, you will get something that we called in our home. I'm not sure what you called it in yours, but in our home we called it a swat. Where I took my hand and applied it to a certain padded part of his posterior anatomy. You know what I'm saying? A swat. David, you are not to step over the garden hose. And I asked him, if you step over that garden hose, what will happen to you, David? And he said, swat, Daddy. You're right. You know what that kid did? That kid is totally depraved. He is morally corrupt. He got it from his mother. He walked up to that garden hose, looked me right in the eye, big smile on his face, and promptly deposited his right foot on the other side of the garden hose. Upon which time he got something we call in our home, I'm not sure what you call it in yours, but in our home we call it a swat. He got one. Now, kid's three years old, right? I'm sure in his three-year-old mentality, he might have been thinking something like this, but Dad, it's fun to run into the street. You've done that. It's fun. It's fun to look at trucks close up. I mean, when they are that close and all the parts are moving and the wheels are turning, it is awesome, Dad. Why would you want to rob me of something? that is absolutely, incredibly, breathtakingly fun. Now, if I asked you, you, if I asked you, how many of you think that I was an ogre? That was not fair of me to do. I'm crimping the kid's lifestyle. I'm robbing him of something that is fun. There aren't a whole lot of fun things three-year-olds can do. Give him a break, Dad. Let him have this one thing that he can enjoy. If I asked you, how many of you thought that I was an ogre? I doubt if there'd be a raised hand in the house. You recognize, I can see it from the looks on your faces, that that is one of the greatest expressions of love that I could ever do. In order to preserve my son from imminent doom, I laid a line. I drew a marker. It was very clear. And there was a penalty. 
That is loving. Would not be loving for me to allow him to have the freedom to do anything he wanted to do. Especially if I know it is destructive, potentially life-threatening. Why is it then that when God draws a line, so many of us react, we recoil, we bristle. God, you're not fair. You're ripping me off. It doesn't make sense. You've built this desire in me and then you have crimped my style. Why is it that when it comes to this issue, so many of us scream out at God? He has drawn a line. He has laid down a garden hose. The line is drawn in the passages I read to you. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, this is God's will that you and I abstain from sexual immorality. This is God's will, Hebrews 13, that the marriage bed remain undefiled for God will judge fornicators and adulterers. Why do we react when God draws that line? We have paid a price for living in a sexually saturated society, believe me. This is the number one topic of discussion among people our age. In fact, studies have shown that the average male in your age group has a sexually related thought every seven seconds. A couple of girls just fainted. I see you. I said that to one group and a girl sitting next to a guy punched him. How dare you? But that is true. Every seven seconds. This is a major issue. And it just doesn't seem fair that God would build a fire within my heart and yours only to put a lid on it. But He has. And the reason He has is very simple. Same reason I laid out a garden hose. He loves you and me. I have a perspective maybe a little different than yours because I have to pick up the pieces. The issues that I deal with when I'm talking to young people cover the spectrum of things. But without question, more than 50% of the issues that I am called upon to deal with are sexually related. Enormous consequences. You may have even read in this morning's paper that Timothy Leary's daughter, Susan, Timothy Leary, the guru of LSD in my generation, his daughter two days ago committed suicide, hanging herself in a prison cell with shoelaces. Tragic, tragic death. Timothy Leary even today has yet not released a statement about that. He is so shaken. She was in prison for battery against her boyfriend on a sexually related issue. You can't even pick up a morning paper without being confronted by it again and again. And the destruction that is the potential when sex is misused is absolutely enormous. Believe me, I've picked up many, many pieces. Something I've had to learn the hard way, and it's absolutely true, and I didn't get this theology from the Bible. I got it from Humpty Dumpty. Humpty Dumpty sat on the wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. And all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty Dumpty back together again. I can be a shoulder to cry on and a listening ear and an arm of comfort, but there are times when the damage is so enormous and the scars run so deep that there's nothing I can do to put the pieces back together again. This is a serious issue. And I'm sure it is one that makes God weep. Makes Him weep for this reason. My classic definition of sex. 
Sex is, in my definition, God's wedding present to the human race. That's what it is. A beautiful, beautiful gift. My wife and I, three weeks ago, celebrated our 14th wedding anniversary. Fourteen years ago, when we got married, we came home from our honeymoon to a house filled with presents. That's one of the fun things about getting married. For the price of a postage stamp, that minimum investment, you'll get a gift. I like that. I like that a lot. Fourteen years ago, crockpots were in. We got five of them. One of them was cracked. So we took it back and exchanged it. We got three toasters. One of which got burned up when my boy had it on a burner and turned the stove on accidentally and burned up our toasters. So one of the three went up in smoke. We got 17 sets of towels. And you know what we did with that stuff? We picked the best of the booty and the rest of it we wrapped up. And now when our friends get married, guess what they get? (laughs) Wedding presents are fun. But you know something? On our wedding night, we got a gift that wasn't duplicated by anybody. And it was the best of the bunch. It was a gift given to us by God. We, as His unique creation and an object of His incredible love, He prepared us a gift. And it was as if God said to my dear wife and I, I'm going to give you a gift that is so special, so unique, that nobody will duplicate it. You can call Mervyn's or you can call some other department store and find out what everybody else bought, but this one ain't on the shelf. This one is not for sale. A unique gift given to us by our Creator. He gave us the gift of sex 14 years ago. Know what? Didn't wear out. The towels did. Know what? Didn't burn out. Toaster did. And you know what? One cracked. The crock pot was. But it worked just fine. 14 years later. Still works. Just fine. In fact, over the last 14 years, we have figured out ways to make it work even better that we didn't know about 14 years ago. A most... Boy, you have a fertile imagination. (laughs) It was a most incredible gift. And I'll tell you what makes it so special. It is so special because everything my wife and and I have ever done, we've done with other people. Everything we've ever done, we've done with other people. We love to go on bike rides together, but I've gone on bike rides with other people. We love to have picnics in the park. We're into nature, Earth Day, that kind of stuff, environment. But we've had picnics with other people. Everything we've ever done... We've done with other people, except for one thing. There is one experience that we have shared together, the most intimate of human experiences, that we have not shared with anyone else. It has been shared only between the two of us, and it is therefore unique to us. It is as if we're the only two that ever share in it, because we do not know what anyone else's experience is like. Because it is unique to her and to me, a shared experience, unique to us, 
There is a bond that has come into our relationship that is stronger and greater and more special than any bond any two human beings can enjoy. Quite a gift, right? Quite a gift. On our wedding night, my wife gave me a gift. It wasn't a store-bought gift. It was much more special than that. You can't buy this in a store. It was a very special and very expensive gift. On our wedding night, after we stood in the presence of God and His angels and His people, and with a representative of Jesus Christ present, we pledged our lives to one another. After that most important ceremony, when we were finally alone, the cake was eaten, the congratulations, the shake hands were done, when we were finally alone, my wife presented me with a gift. Something I will never forget. Something that means more to me than anything anyone else has ever given me. She gave me a a body. Absolutely pure. Untouched. Undefiled. Presented it to me as a gift. Telling me that she had preserved it all these years. Just for me. I gave her a gift. I gave her a body. Preserved. For 24 years, just for her. And a very expensive gift, I might add, the most expensive gift I have ever given anyone. I'll tell you why. I hit puberty when I hit the grand old age of 13 years old. I got married when I was 24. That means that for 11 years, I had the constant battle of having to resist sexual temptation and opportunity for 11 years. Every time the opportunity presented itself for me to engage in a sexual relationship with a girl I was dating, every time I resisted that, when I got home, in my mind, it was as if I was making a deposit in a bank account. It was hard, painful. You talk about biting a bullet, right? I'm a man, ladies and gentlemen. My plumbing works just fine. And every hormonal desire that surges and pulsates through your veins surged and pulsated through mine. But whenever I said no and made that denial, it was as if I was making a deposit in a bank account. And on August 13th, 1976... I cashed in and closed out the account. And all of that accumulated money over all those years, figuratively speaking, I bought my dear wife a gift, gave it to her on our wedding night. A body reserved in purity for her. She did the same for me. We've now been married 14 years. Let me ask you a question. For denying myself sexual fulfillment for those 11 years, did I get ripped off? Did I lose anything? Am I a poor, poverty-stricken little Christian whose God is such an ogre that He crimped my style and ripped me off of incredible ecstasy? Did I, did I lose any of that? I wonder how many of you have a friend, Christian friend your age, Christian friend your age who's involved in an immoral sexual relationship. Can I see your hands? Would you look at that? 
Who's getting ripped off? Who? The most beautiful gift God ever created. And you have no idea how thrilled I am to be able to stand here and give Him public thanks and praise for showing His love to me to that degree. That's why sexual immorality is such a devastating thing. How many of you know of a Christian couple whose marriage ended in divorce? Can I see your hands? Boy, look at that. In a day in which the two major compromises of sexual immorality and divorce have fractured our churches. My wife and I, 14 years and going strong, largely because, largely because, we waited until that wedding night and allowed God to build a bond between us that has already lasted 14 years and going on for a lifetime. Who gets ripped off? Your friends or me? The answer is obvious, right? I know whenever this topic comes up, there are, what's, what's the word now floating around, the buzzword around this campus? A plethora. I know there are a plethora of questions that go through your mind. We're going to take, and I don't have a lot of time, maybe only about ten minutes if any of you have the courage to step up to a microphone, but my two good friends, Dave and Charles, are going to man each mic to help you phrase your question very concisely if indeed you have one. If not, then we'll just bring it to a conclusion, and I'll assume that I've been complete enough you don't have any, but if you do, feel free to step right up to a microphone. And I don't want you to be intimidated. It ought to be that at a school like this, we ought to have the freedom to dialogue together about any topic, and certainly about this one, because it impacts your life in such a dramatic way. So, we're not going to waste time. I'm not going to wait a long time. If you have a question, just leave your seat wherever you are. Come down to a microphone, if you would, please, so that we can deal with whatever question you may have. Thank you for coming. I see that hand. God bless you. God bless you. Don't wait a lot of time, because this is your time, and I want to respect it. But step right on up, Dan, and... Let it fly. And anything goes, okay? We're not going to laugh at you. We'll be very discreet in our answers. There's no such thing as a stupid question. If you're thinking it, I'm sure there are other people who are thinking of this, and we want to have the opportunity to dialogue with you about it. Okay? All right, Dan. Yeah, I've got a kind of a pretty close personal friend who I know for sure is a Christian. There's no doubt in my mind that he is. And even though he admits this is wrong and, and I, he tells me it's wrong, Mits freely to it. He definitely has an addiction to sex. I mean, like like one would have to drugs. And uh, is there? What do I do? I mean, he comes to me and he's like, I know what's wrong, but what can I do? Sexual addiction is probably, like any addiction, one of the toughest toughest topics to deal with. My initial response to that is buy him a padlock and apply it to a certain part of his pants <laughs> and throw the key away. But. That probably isn't practical. So, chastity um, belts out went a long time ago. He will have to deal with sexual addiction the way anyone has to deal with any addiction, and that is to say, very, very heavy, heavy accountability. He's going to have to be. You have to understand, sex does not just happen. I know we don't always believe that because I hear couples talk and they say to me, it just happened. It doesn't just happen. It follows a series of deliberate choices, 
right? I have to make some willful choices about what I do with my hands, what I do with certain parts of my body in order to prepare for the event to even take place. So for a person to put himself in a situation where that is impossible to happen, when he's with a girl always in a public place, uh, very accountable to a couple of godly guys who are watching literally every move that he makes, make certain that you're screening everything the guy puts into his mind, go through his room or apartment and make sure you're cleaning it out of any sexually stimulating material. All of the normal steps that you would take with any kind of addiction is the only way that you're going to handle that. Sometimes, and I don't want to seem unkind or insensitive, but I've dealt with this enough that sometimes we hide behind certain words like addiction. As if to say it's no longer my fault, right? An alcoholic, for example, will tell you that he has a disease. Because it is a disease, in his mind, there's no longer human responsibility involved. I don't believe that for a minute. Like, and I grew up in an alcoholic's home, so I've got a certain level of credibility here. It involves certain deliberate choices that a person makes. He reaches out with his hand, he grasps a bottle, he opens the bottle, lifts it to his lips, chug-a-lugs the stuff down. Those are deliberate series of choices, and it's most important that you remove all of that stimulus from him, put him under heavy accountability. Okay, thanks. All right. I might also add, Dan, and thank you for that, I might also add that you measure a commitment, not just a gift, but a commitment, the value of it, by how much you're willing to pay to preserve it. And I've often been asked the question, why would God build a raging fire inside of me and then limit my expression of it? One of the answers to that is this. As I limit my expression of it in obedience to the Word of God, I am showing God how serious and valuable my commitment to Him is. People have said to me, well, you're lucky, you're married, you have a natural outlet, but there's no guarantee that my wife will live a long life. God forbid, and I don't want to sound crass, but you understand what I'm saying, through a series of circumstances unforeseen, she could die tonight. That may mean that within a few hours' time, I am called upon to live a celibate life once again. And by resisting sexual temptation, if that is to happen, I am showing God how much my commitment to Him is worth. Also, don't live under the delusion that once you get married, sexual temptation is a non-issue. Believe me, you and I are always more tempted by what we have experienced, right? And having lived in intimacy for 14 years with a woman, there is still the thought, the wonder, the curiosity. What would it be like to engage in this relationship with another woman? Because I've only known one. Do you honestly believe that I don't face sexual temptation on this campus? But by resisting it, I am communicating to God loud and clear. My commitment to you, God, means a lot. It is valuable. I'm still making deposits. So how do you handle a sexual addiction? The same way you would handle any addiction, right? Clean out the stimuli. Heavy accountability. Right over here. Well, Dewey, we have two questions from okay. Daryl and Kristen, but before they asked theirs, someone passed in a question okay. um, that they wanted me to read. Um, you've mentioned that both you and your wife were virgins in, on your honeymoon. But this, question, this um, questioner asks, is it right to set a standard to marry a virgin? Is that a standard that all of us should set? And the second part of that is, what if one partner is not a virgin? Uh, should the relationship be dissolved on that basis? Mm, excellent questions. I believe in any dating relationship, you have the responsibility to set for yourself whatever guidelines you want. It is not necessarily right or wrong to set the standard that you will only marry a virgin. That is your call, and you have the privilege and prerogative before God to make that determination for yourself. 
If you are dating someone who has fallen sexually, they have repented of that. They've been honest with you. They have a track record of living a clean, sexually pure life. And you feel very confident in marrying that person and you are able to put that aside and make it a non-issue. Then God bless you. That's your prerogative. If, on the other hand, you set for yourself the standard that you will only marry a virgin, then you certainly have every responsibility before God to observe that, and that would be fine for you. So there isn't a yes or a no right or wrong answer to either of those two questions. That is your call. I have talked to some girls who have set that standard for themselves and have been given by guys they've dated incredible guilt trips. What right do you have to sit in judgment on me? That is too high of a standard. That's unrealistic. I don't agree with that. If you want to marry a virgin, then that is certainly your privilege to set that as your standard. Yes. Um, I've, I've listened to you speak a lot of times, and I've heard you talk about this subject probably more times than I've heard you talk about anything else. My question is, and I, I think I speak for all the students that have fallen before, what do you say to students who have? I've never heard you speak on students who have fallen and fallen flat on their faces. And uh, what do you say to kids who come to you and to the students that are out here that I know are sitting in their seats going, well, could, you, where were you five years ago? I'm so glad you asked that because that's the last five-minute conclusion to what I'm going to do today. I want to talk to you for the last five minutes about those of you who have fallen. Uh, what is difficult for me, and I live in this tension and I think you'll relate to it, it is very difficult for me to set a standard for young people who haven't fallen already and not want to budge or lower that standard at all, and yet at the same time bring healing to those who have without convincing those who haven't that it's no big deal if they do. You understand that tension? And so that's why many times when you have heard me speak, it is probably after I have tried to talk to so many Humpty Dumpties who have fallen off the wall and the frustration level that I feel and the pain to which I am exposed is so great that when I talk to young people, I want to set the standard, especially junior high young people, saying don't violate this. But you are right. There are many even in this room this morning who have fallen. That will be my final conclusion. So hang on to that. Thank you. Yes. I have a question about uh, confronting friends who uh, aren't involved in sexual immorality, but they're walking so close to the edge that, you know, you're just like afraid that, you know, any day, any week, any month in their relationship that they're going to go too far and, you know, the temptation might, you know, they might fall to it. How do you confront those people in love and say, hey, you're walking too close to the line? Let me answer that question in two ways. One is, first of all, let's establish how far is too far, okay? Because you mentioned they're walking too far, and there's a lot of confusion as to how far too far is. I've heard people say that God does not draw a line other than sexual intercourse. I've heard people say that the Bible doesn't tell us how far we can go. And so that's up for grabs. But I don't agree with that. I believe that God sets a very clear line as to how far sexually you and I can go, um, you especially as unmarried people. And the answer is found in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 1. God says, Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. That is where God draws the line. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. The word touch is a very specific word that means to touch in a sexually stimulating manner. That's what the word means. It's used oftentimes in the Old Testament, the Greek form that appears in the New Testament, in the context of a sexually stimulating touch. So my stock answer to the question, how far is too far, is this. If you get turned on, you have gone too far. If you get turned on, you have gone too far. In the passage that I read, 1 Thessalonians 4, there was a word there, the word defraud. We are not to defraud one another. 
The word defraud means to stir up appetites that cannot be righteously satisfied. So, if you stir up in yourself or in your dating partner an appetite sexually that cannot be righteously satisfied, you have then defrauded that person or yourself. There is a tremendous freedom that comes into dating when the physical problems are not an issue. So if you stay far away from it and don't turn one another on, you will enjoy the freedom and the openness of an incredible friendship without all of the encumbrances of the guilt that can result if you are crossing those lines. If you get turned on, you've gone too far. Okay? Now, how do you confront a person in love who has gone too far? The best way that I know is to sit that person down eyeball to eyeball and very lovingly point out what you have observed and why you are concerned. As Galatians says, taking heed lest you also fall into the same thing, right? We realize none of us is above it. So in a very loving way to sit down and talk openly about what we see and the danger that we are concerned about. Um, I think Bob back here, he's on the bleacher, so... See if he can answer his question. Okay, this will be the last one, Bob, and then I've got to bring it to a close. Nice and loud, please. Oh, I have great news for you. I have great news for you. If any man be in Christ, he's a what? New creature. The old is gone. A person who has fallen before coming to Christ, the minute he comes to Christ, is a virgin again. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away. And what's the next word? All things are new. So whatever happens before Christ is a non-issue. Let's talk about people who have fallen as Christians. There is a great verse, and I want to end with this verse. It's a very familiar verse, but it is so familiar, I'm afraid we've robbed it of its significance. 1 John 1, 9. Familiar with that verse? It says this. If we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from what? All unrighteousness. Where that verse breaks down is in an understanding of what the word confess means. Let me tell you what it means. The word confess means to say the same thing about our sin that God says. Say the same thing about our sin that God says. God says three things about sin. God says, number one, that was sin, and I hate it. I hate it because of the enormous damage and destruction that it can cause. I hate it. Second thing God says is this. That was sin, and it breaks my heart. It breaks my heart because of the pain that I have to watch. God never intended for us to have painful lives as consequences of our bad choices. That's why He draws lines. So I hate what you did and it breaks my heart. Not because I'm an ogre wanting to wreck your life, but because I don't want you to get hit by a Mack truck. Third thing God says is this. Don't do it again. Don't do it again. Confession is to face our sin that honestly. God, what I did was sin and I hate it. I hate it the way you hate it because of the enormous damage that it can do not only to my life, to the life of the one I have violated, but the enormous damage it can do to you and to the reputation of God. And God, that was sin and it breaks my heart. 
breaks my heart because it breaks your heart. It breaks my heart because it added to the agony Christ experienced on the cross. It breaks my heart. And God, I know that was sin, and I promise you I will not do it again. I will keep my body pure, reserved for the one I marry. And I will only experience sex on that most incredible wedding night when we enjoy the gift that you have prepared for us. If you face what you've done with that kind of honesty, transparency, you know what God says? I will cleanse you from what? All unrighteousness. You know what that means? God gives you a second chance. Isn't that great? Isn't that great? But it requires that level of commitment. It requires, to use what I think is a very good word, it requires a vow. A sacred, solemn promise between you and God that you will keep your body pure, reserved for the one you marry, and sexual expression will only take place on that most important, significant wedding night. Would you bow your heads with me in prayer, please? Every head bowed, every eye closed.